This episode is brought to you by HealthMate Saunas. After much research and study into finding ways to increase my energy, all answers pointed towards incorporating saunas into my recovery. Infrared saunas differ from traditional saunas because they warm you from the inside out. Saunas provide deep relaxation and boost that energy through increased blood flow and also cleanse the system, release toxins and provide a deep detox. For me, I use my sauna at the end of a tough workout or after a busy working day. And of course, having the sauna conveniently in my house removes all obstacles of making it part of my weekly routine. I simply plug in my HealthMate to the usual household plug and I'm ready to go. But why is a HealthMate better than any other infrared sauna? HealthMate are the global market leader in infrared saunas and have been for the last 40 years. They're the only company to offer a patented infrared technology which guarantees that infrared penetrates deep beneath the skin, critical to getting our health benefits. They only use green and sustainable materials on their saunas and are the only company to offer an unconditional lifetime warranty. Personally, I have a two-person cabin, but there are a variety of models, shapes, and sizes that can work for you, all available at health-mate.co.uk. Go to their website to get yours. This is Take Flights with Mark Whittle. Welcome to Take Flight. I'm Mark Whittle, former city worker turned performance coach, and this is your place for inspiration, and education on ways to optimize your performance and find your purpose. The most powerful force in the world is to be consistent with your identity. If the shoes don't fit, take them off. You can lie to everyone else, but you can't lie to yourself. You need to trade your expectations for appreciation. You know, we only live once. When all is said and done, the only thing you have left is your memories. The guest this week is one of England rugby's greatest leaders and captains to ever wear the shirt. Dylan Hartley. Dylan is a former professional rugby player, earning 251 appearances at club level with Northampton Saints, in the process becoming a Saints legend, plus earning a whopping 97 international caps for England, the third most capped England player of all time and most capped player in his position ever. Born in New Zealand and experiencing the Maori mana, a code of honour from a young age, Dylan received the ultimate rugby education. Some of his teammates going on to become pro, and some even All Blacks. Sensing he was slightly off the mark, Dylan found the courage to literally take flight, moving to England and pursuing professional rugby. The rest, as they say, is history. I was fortunate enough to spend a decent amount of time with Dylan before and after we recorded, including a spot of lunch together. It was a great day. He's a top top guy and I loved hearing about his journey to success and learning about the man behind some of the media headlines. Dylan and I actually sat in a box at the Saints grounds overlooking the pitch for this conversation so if you like watching the video version of these episodes they now drop on Wednesdays after the audio episode has gone live so you can subscribe on YouTube at Take Flight TV And of course, if it's your first time listening to this audio show, you can subscribe on Apple and Spotify for all new episode releases weekly. We spoke for about a couple of hours, so I've edited this conversation into two episodes so you can absorb it in two parts. Part two dropping a week after part one. So whether you're tuning into part one or part two, I hope you enjoy listening to the man who has seen and done nearly everything possible in professional rugby. This is Dylan Hartley. Thanks for listening. 
it's nice to get Time Sports Book of the Year, but I don't really advertise it. I'm not on a royalty basis, I don't think, so I, I'm not going to sit here and push it. You but barely um, shared it when it came out, really, but like, I, I, I thought it was a fantastic book, so anyone who hasn't read it, I'm, I'm a big fan of like memoirs and autobiographies anyway. Like, I, I read a lot of fiction books, and then now I'm at the stage where I get more from people's stories. Like, yeah. You can really relate to that. Have you got a favourite? Favourite sporting Yeah, sporting book. book. Sporting book. book. <sighs> Similar to what you said earlier, it's always, you know, we were talking about social media before we hit record. It's always the last one I've read. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yours at the minute. Oh, I, I read it again come before on, we mate. I'll tell you what, Shoe Dog, which is not an autobiography, mate, but... Oh it my is. God. Well, oh, I suppose no, it's a memoir. No, sorry. I thought you said it's not a, an audio book because I don't read, you see. I only listen. I love that. I've listened to it like three times yeah. over. I've just got Shoemaker, which is the Reebok version. Okay. It's just come out. I've got, he's coming on the pod. He's like 70 plus, this guy who's created Reebok in Bolton. Obviously then to compete with Nike and Adidas over the years. Crazy. What, Bolton UK? Yeah. I yeah, didn't yeah. know the story. It's crazy. But I've not, I've not finished that one yet. But yeah, Shoe Dog is one of my favorite books for sure. Do you know why? Because it's a success story. It's like a timeline. Yeah. Like you grow with the book and you see the guy like in there shitty old sort of office with the broken window next to the dive bar and the jukebox yeah. and he sort of misses those days and when they they he's worth what 180 million overnight or something like that final chapter the last two pages is just when he sells the business and then his bank account's got whatever in it and then he follows that up with like his son died or something it's just like fuck it like a roller coaster yeah but i, I just think like you grow with the book and yeah. I'd see myself as a bit of an entrepreneur. Like, sounds like you are. Like, we're talking about the sort of different jobs that you do. It's just such a cool story. You know, yeah. a guy found a way. Yeah. Um, you know, the early days being out in Japan. Uh, yeah. I, do you know what? If they should make a film of it. Mm. I don't know if they have. But. They should. But, like, do you know what's the best thing about it? And again, it's similar to your book, is the things that you love when you grow with the book, you grow with the book because you feel the failures. And we all fail and it feels horrible. I oh, know we were talking about it earlier. But then to, to hear somebody else's failures and how they struggled, like he, he nearly went bankrupt nearly every year, but yeah. still managed to find somehow of getting another bank to give him money to get their next order of shoes and sell the next load of shoes. And yeah, it's, it's But again, it's like I suppose it's like a culture thing, like in America, I, I certainly know, like they almost celebrate that. Mm. It's like people giving it a crack where but I've done it so many times. I've been that close to trying to do something and then I just go, no, 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 I'm okay. Really? Yeah. Like and what? then, I don't know, just like business ventures and ideas, you know, I've always, I've always got ideas and I'm, I'm kind of thinking whatever I've done and this is where I like love someone like James Haskell. We mm. were talking about this before. Whatever he wants to do, he gives a crack. He kind of, uh, he, he told me uh, like a funny way of putting it. He said, do you know what? He goes, you're like a sniper. You sit there waiting for the perfect headshot, but mm. the perfect headshot will never come. So I overthink things. Where he goes, I'm, I've got an issue. Like I'm like a machine gun. I just fire bullets everywhere. So if we could find like a semi-automatic, somewhere yeah. in between, you know what I mean? And But I admire people that give it a crack, you know? Um, I think... I'm quite a risk averse sort of person, which just sounds weird because in many ways I'm not as well. From your sporting background, like leaving New Zealand and... and no, but there, again, it was roadmap, you know, like, yeah. and, and what I'm going to potentially do next, like, there, there's a roadmap to it. There's a thought process, mm. you know. If you do it straight away, it's like um, impulsive and yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Um, but there was a roadmap and a plan, so... yeah. Even though you've got the plan, it's never going to be, you still got to do the work, you yeah. know what I mean? Whether it's losing weight or moving halfway around the world mm. or training to be better at a skill, 
you still got to put in the the hours. You got to put in the bloody work, you know. And plans change. Yeah, you got to deviate. And, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm just looking at all the Saints going for their second meeting and. Oh, two hours bring your memories back oh, nice warm room <laughs> they've just had some lunch I think they'll be falling asleep in there <laughs> so I want to ask you about your relationship with Eddie it's yep. been very well documented so just a specific question before we move on to more of your England crew I wonder you spoke about in your book how he's quite a, a non-conformist I've spoken with most of the people who have been on the show in some way or other are a non-conformist I just wonder why or whether that's why you got on so well because I feel like you're similar in that sense. And, and when I say nonconformist, I do feel like people get that phrase slightly muddled and they think a nonconformist is someone who just doesn't want to abide by the rules and wants to do things their own way and just wants to stand out by being different when I don't believe that's the case. I think a nonconformist is someone who just is prepared to ask questions, challenge the status quo, think differently to the man that came before him or the woman that came before I him. I just think someone that's a nonconformist is a, is a considered person. I think there's so many negative connotations about a non-conformist, you know, like all the stuff you just mm. said there. But I think someone that doesn't conform is considered like they're their own person. They take the time to think about what's been asked or they're not afraid to even just wear something different. You know what I mean? Because they're comfortable. Mm. They're comfortable within themselves. And if someone's comfortable within themselves, they often say what they think which I think in any sort of group of people is rare because people don't want to be ostracized or you know, singled out, if that makes sense. So I think in a business sense, it's welcomed you know, because it's, it it's happen. You know, people don't challenge. And uh, in team sport, uh, traditionally, it, you know, people don't challenge. I think that's changing, though. I know coaching has become far more collaborative in terms of a little bit like uh, we talked about trillion dollar coach you know empowering the room to everyone to have a voice for the so that the team feels like they're making the decision but then you've got the throne at the round table you know <laughs> that this is what we're going to do and eddie's very much like that so he he's um he's very much a, a non-conformist in terms of he does what he wants not to be difficult it's because he's confident in himself and he's a considered person you know which i think i respect him and that's ultimately why um I've got different angles on Eddie, but ultimately I respected him because he's he's one. He's older. I, I come from a culture where you know, we all talk about respecting your elders, your elders. But New Zealand, certainly Maori culture that I grew up with, that was very much sort of what we we practiced. Um, so one, he was older. Uh, two, like you look at his resume, like the stuff he'd done even before coming to England. He's a well-respected sort of yeah. rugby brain. So two and three, ultimately, he gave me an opportunity. Um, so when someone throws you a bone, I was on my ass, you know, post 2015. Uh, I didn't think I'd play for England again. And he offered me a captaincy role. So I'm like, whoa, okay. Anyone that kind of throws you a bone, you repay that faith, you know. Mm. So I'm, I'm a very loyal person in that respect. So, yeah, my relationship with him was born out of respect, really, because he had given me an opportunity and I enjoyed his company interesting guy like because you, you see his kind of um, his edgy hard side and I saw plenty of that but equally like he loves rugby he loves the camaraderie he loves sport you know did you see he loves Liverpool he loves tennis loves all this different stuff you see that this weekend oh and then he he tells little stories about you know what happened in South Africa in his time or I used to work with this player you know some iconic players in, mm. in terms of rugby he'd be like he you know just 
tell you a, a hilarious story about that. So he wasn't like a coach, I suppose, that I worked with in the past. That that's the coach's table over there. But he loved like the, the crack with the boys. He'd come sit on the table. He'd hold court. He loved James Haskell because he could yeah. storytell. Yeah. You know, and I think probably that's where we might have got ourselves a role in terms of myself and James. Like we kind of bridged that gap because we were relatable to Eddie because he had coached players similar to us because we played with the amateur professional crossover. Whereas the kids today, it's so refined, like the distant memory mm. from what the game was, whether it be football, rugby, any sport, you know, it's completely different. And he's a 60 year old bloke. So I think we were kind of relatable to him. Uh, we were almost <laughs> like the translators to the youth. Yeah. But um, what a what an interesting guy. Like, And he's the sort of guy that probably introduced me to growth mindset at 29 years old you know we talked about this before i wasn't mature enough in my my career one because i'd left home at 16 so i didn't answer to anyone i was a grown man in my mind you know and that's probably why i got into trouble a lot because mm -hmm. i didn't answer to anyone i resented authority i did it my way because i'd moved from new zealand i'd become a professional rugby player. i don't need help and i said to you i met with steve peters you know famous sort of author and um, we call him a psychologist sports psychologist or at 19 he wanted to help me and I just didn't have the maturity to want to do that and at 29 years old once I'd kind of wised up a bit I meet someone like Eddie and he's like mate read this book here look at this article this guy's in camp today make sure you have a coffee with him he's kind of constantly feeding me information and for all the sort of 4am text messages I got saying come see me in the morning training not good enough today and that flashes up at four in the morning. It's like, you know, like my day is going to start hard tomorrow. Not a good way to sleep, you know. But for all those sort of negative things where he stands there and goes, looks you in the guy goes, mate, you're not good enough physically. Like basically saying you're fat. You know, you're not going to last here. And we have this one-on-one -on -one conversation. I'm like, in, in a world where we're too sensitive, you know, again, we conform and we don't want to hurt feelings and stuff like that. He sits there and looks you dead in the eye and goes, you're not good enough, mate. And he doesn't say, get out. He goes, you need to make a plan. Talk to Tweety, you know, the head of SNC. Talk to Guzzy about your defense. Da, da, da. He's like, if you make a plan with those guys, a strategy, mm -hmm. and you'll be better, mate. And I look at myself 2016 physically to how I retired. Man, I'm a different, different athlete, you know. I was an athlete at the start. I might have looked, you know, similar to one at the end. But in terms of something, he looked me dead in the eye, told me I wasn't good enough but you can get there and it was, it was incredibly hard work and I got there, you know, through him sort of guiding me. Mm. I mean, not with a carrot, it was with a stick, but I got there and it, it kind of taught me that um, anything worth doing, like whether it's going to be business or, or life or, or sport is incredibly hard, like climbing a mountain. Everyone can get to base camp, mm. but how many people summit, you know, the, the higher you go, the harder it is and you just need to keep, you know, keep pushing forward. And that's why, um, you know, effectively I, I saw what, what winning was under Eddie. We won 18 games in a row, which is a world record. Um, and I didn't enjoy much of it. I didn't enjoy the winning. Uh, I didn't enjoy the hard work. It was on. Like mentally, it was, I've never been depressed in my life, but every sort of tournament or, you know, like when I came home, it was like probably burnout, you know, physical, because, you know, rugby is a physical game as well. The training's physical, like mentally just being prodded the whole time. So that experience was, I'm so grateful I had it because I, I had a taste. 
mm. you know, because I played 70 games for England before that and hadn't really done anything. But 70 games are a lot of games, you know. Yeah. But I kind of tend, I, I finished my career, experienced the best of the best. And when you go back to Eddie's role in that, like it was uncomfortable. But man, like we had our good moments in between, you know, it was, it was enjoyable at the same time. But it's easy, you always think of the negative connotations. But I'm so grateful mm. that I got that. And he's the one that opened my eyes to growth mindset, reading more, talking more. And it wasn't about rugby and physically, you know, some days he's like, go talk to QC, where to QC. What's that stand for? Queen's Council, Queen's Court. Okay. You know, like a proper smart lawyer. Okay. Yeah. Like that, we had a QC in camp and um, go spend some time with QC, mate. And QC represented me a few times in rugby in rugby courts. Hmm. And it's like watching something out of, is it Suits? Is that a. Yeah, yeah. Like proper held the room, like powerful, powerful when he spoke and articulate because he was a smart man. He said, spend some time with QC, mate. And QC sat down with me and we had a great relationship because I basically kept him in a job because I had so many major bands. Mm. Um, <laughs> he can't have been that good because he never got me off anything. <laughs> no, he always, he always mitigated or got things down for me, which was good. Eddie, you know, go spend time with him. So this wasn't about rugby. It wasn't about my physical sort of, this is about how I spoke to the room. And um, QC comes back to me and goes, uh, every meeting, you know, I want you to align yourself with the head coach. It's far more powerful. So... Mm sit yourself in the room where people see you in as a position of authority. So sit yourself near Eddie. So at the front of the room, Eddie's standing at the front. So if I need to speak, I can stand up. And he goes, I want you to finish every meeting with your words, you know? And basically it was up to me what I said, but it was almost reaffirming what the coach had just said. Mm. So then the players, he was saying, see you as a, a person of authority. So, and they listen to you, which is, it's like deeply rooted psychological mm. stuff, but just little things like that, you know. I had people helping me improve the whole time, whether it be rugby, physically, S and C, diet, you know, speaking, you know, how to stand, like things like that, yeah. how to use your hands, and I mean, it was just the whole experience was unbelievable, unbelievable hard work. But when I look back at it, do I miss it? No, hmm. physically, no. Being prodded every day, no. But then someone asked me the other day, what do you miss? Don't miss the camaraderie. Don't miss the don't miss anything. Don't miss the game. The one thing I do miss is being challenged every day. Mm. Like, you know that feeling of you gotta do fitness test. Yeah. On the line. You can get that sicky feeling. You're like, how am I gonna go here? I miss being challenged every day. I miss having a higher power. And this is where super successful people create their own higher power, I think. I don't I'm not that person, by the way. But like I knew I'd have to say no to starters chips and dessert on a a night out a date night with my wife mm -hmm. i'd just have steak and salad because i had skinfolds every monday the nutritionist would come to my house drive three hours to come take my skinfolds because that was a good barometer of how professional i was because i love my food and I'm, I'm up and down you know but i knew having that higher power i'd start saying no to things i'd start training in my downtime flexibility mobility yoga started filling it all in, you know, mm -hmm. and having that higher power. So when I went into camp and I whipped off my clothes, I'm still doing my kit. I knew my skin folds were good because I'd had that higher power to get me there. Basically, Eddie, you know, if, if your skin folds are terrible. I saw um, Luke Cowan-Dickey who, who played against Scotland and Italy at the weekend. He was the third choice hooker at the time. And I was aware, like I love him as a player. 
Uh, he was, he was re- he's rough now, like a rough diamond now, but he was way rougher mm. a couple of years ago. And he drove up from Exeter and I'm um, like, this kid's good. Like I need to basically, you know, help me. There's almost another higher power when you've got Jamie George and Luke Cowan Dickey that keep you honest, yeah. you know, make you do the work. But Luke came up and this is a summer camp. Bearing in mind, I turned down a trip to... Uh, Ed Sheeran had donated some tickets to my testimonial uh, in Las Vegas. So I was all signed up to go on that. And Eddie called the summer camp. I had to turn that down so I couldn't go. Again, like these are the, the, the choices or sacrifices we make in mm-hmm. sport. Eddie said, you can No, He didn't say anything. I knew I had to go to the yeah. camp. I go to the summer camp and I turn up because I know I've got to be, you know, skin folds are the first thing that the, the forwards do when they're there. You know, it's all part of the, the testing. And um, Luke Kandicki turns up. And he was sent home within 10 minutes of being there because he was, his skin folds were too high. Like if, if you're an England player, it's not just at Six Nations or Ultimate, it's all year round, you know? Like, and I don't know how high they were. I mean, you look at him now, he's, he's a machine. He looks mm. f- unbelievably fit. That sort of, that shook the, the foundations of that hotel. Like, have you heard like Dickie's been sent home? And bearing in mind, this is London to Exeter. So he's just driven five hours. Yeah for probably half an hour get skin folds done he's sent home so everyone's like whoa so that higher power was always present in my mind and it's not just about skip it's about everything you know so Standards. i miss the one thing i miss now is being challenged every day mm-hmm. and i suppose it's like creating your own sort of discipline or higher power when did you feel like most purposeful mm. i think that's easy in that environment because you have a purpose you have a job you know you're institutionalized um, I think, yeah, probably the tail end of my career. Again, yeah. having the maturity to and understanding that this is my last shot at it. It's like you saying you work with like 29, 30-year-old guys when mm. they mature up and they need, yeah. they want to talk and they want to have extra help. And you think, how funny is it? Like the amount of senior professionals, that's why they're the best people to have in the club because they're that desperate to hang on. They do everything. You know, you see them stretching, you see them doing every sort of recovery method, mm. that they're in the physio room, they're, they're diligent with their homework. You know, they're such good role models to have around because, you know, at 18, 19, where you go professional, like that is a skill that you can't learn. You've got to be in an environment and learn it. So you can't practice that at school or at your local rugby club. So I think those sort of older people to have around environment uh unbelievably powerful you just can't have too many of them because you obviously need the performance to go with that experience as well which is where you get a tipping point i suppose in selection where people get put out to 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 pasture not to stud um i was never put out to stud (laughs) but i don't know if that makes sense i felt most purposeful i think when i was and i felt probably more enlightened when I was more knowledgeable, when I'd read more things, when I'd experienced any sort of environment. So when coming back here, I suppose I got it. I got it a lot more. Sounds like that's basically clarity. Yeah. And that clarity came from Eddie being incredibly direct. And then I suppose you having belief in his ability to do it. Yeah, but when, when you've got clarity, right? Like it's so easy because when you've got clarity, you've usually got a roadmap or strategy to what, even clarity in my game. Mm. So no coach had ever sat me down before. And Eddie just, he was pretty honest. He goes, you're not that good. <laughs> he goes, but you're very good at these things, you know? And I'm like, okay, so kick me. And he's picked me back up. How did that feel when he said that? 
Oh, but I got it. Like my whole game, my whole career was that. Like right. I made a career out of being like ultra competitive. Mm. And I'm lucky that rugby's physical and I was confrontational, physical, but born out of ultra competitive. Like I was verbal. I chatted all game. And like you, you'd be um, amazed that some of the best players in the world are the quietest people. And it's so frustrating trying to get talk out of them. Yeah. You need to communicate, you know? So I was, so he sent me down. He goes, right, physically you're not the best, but we'll work on that. That's what we talked about earlier. We'll roadmap that out for you. But all I need you to do in this team is a bit like Moneyball, right? He goes, I need mm. you to be world-class. I want you to be the best in the world. He goes, you're the best in England at the moment at throwing. But I want you to be world-class at line-out throwing, world-class at scrummaging. And I want you to make good tackles. And I want you to clear rucks. He didn't say, I want you to be Courtney Laws. I don't want you to have a YouTube highlights reel of tackles. Just say defensively sound. And I want you to clear rucks. And I've gone, it's the first time someone sat me down mm and just said exactly what I need to do. And it sounds so simple. Again, looking back, it's so simple, but like, this is your role. It's almost like if you get a job, what? where's my contract? What do I need to do? Mm. Maybe easy in the real world, because that's what happens potentially. But in rugby, you're this all-encompassing team. The ball might come to you and you might have to kick it. But if that happens, it happens. But in terms of your, your focus, this is what you want to do. So I went, Okay, so I'm there, there, there. I actually do all these things now, and that's all you want me to do. Okay, so when I went out to games and training, that's all I focused about, like focused on, and it just freed me up. And the same thing happened with James Haskell. You know, you're always being compared to another player. I was compared to Jamie George for a long time, and in that period of my career, Jamie George did all the opposite of those things. Whilst he was a good scrummager, line-out thrower, competent, he was, you know, Eddie wanted his hands on the ball. Mm. So when you come on the field, get your hands on the ball. When you come on the field, do this, you know? Mm. Eddie, he sent me down to a meeting. He was like, you're going to do this for 60 minutes. And then Jamie would come on and do his thing. So I'm like, cool, clarity. Everyone asked me, are you friends with Jamie George? Yes, teammates, you know what I mean? There's clarity in the group about who's doing what. And I think narrative on the outside, this is quite a hard thing to manage. Um, even when you're aware of managing it, is that this narrative always chipping away that you're not good enough because you only do those four things. You know, you don't do the things that this other person is doing. And it's like just having the strength, I suppose. And this is where having a real direct sort of boss and respect that I have for him and trust. He actually just said, just keep doing what you're doing. And I knew if I came off a game, if I'd hit those four things, I could, you know, I could walk in on a Sunday morning meeting and now I've done my job. I look at my stats, rucks hit, tackles made, zero missed, uh, 100% line out, 100% scrum. I'm like, cool, money ball, doing my job within the team. Mm. So, so that, that, that sort of clarity, man, like made me enjoy it as well instead of thinking I've got to go out and try and... Because otherwise, when, when you don't have clarity, people go off script in a game, you know, then you get people trying to get their hands on the ball mm. to... I don't know, impress a coach. Prove himself. Yeah, impress yeah. the media. I don't yeah. know who the fuck. You, but like when you've got clarity, people stay on script. Yeah. Stick that's, to the plan. That's so interesting, mate. I love that so much. And that's, it's understanding yourself. A lot of the work, again, that I do is about understanding who we are. You know, it can sound quite deep, but just understanding that we aren't either the voice in our head that says you're shit. Like you're saying, that, oh, you're not good at the other stuff. Like that's not actually who we are. It's just a thought that's come up. Probably because someone said you're shit at some point and you've believed it's, it. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, I, I kind of, I joke about that because I was very good at other things, you know? I wasn't good at certain things, but I was very good at other things. What, are you, what are you very good at? I mean, I 
from watching. I have my own opinions, but what what do you think you're very good at? I was ultra competitive. I was never quiet, so I was never beaten. And I think in a, in a team, in a, a physical sport, like you want competitors, you know, mm. I, fought, I fought for everything. I think I was emotionally invested. Like I loved it. I absolutely loved competing. I hated losing. And I think it's not a criticism of the game now. And there's certainly players out there you know, Alice Ginge, Carl Sinclair, I see them. People say hot-headed, mm-hmm. but I see them as emotionally invested. Like, they care. Like, Owen Farrell cares. They care about winning. Like, I was emotionally invested in every team I played for. Um, I had a skill set. I was front row forward. All I had to do was those things I talked about mm-hmm. really, really well. There's other people to be the stars, you know. But, like, um, you know, fortunately for me, there was, there was a salary for someone that did those things very well, and mm-hmm. I did them. So... The other thing, like, a bit like, I don't talk about this very often, but it's kind of saying back in my day, but a bit like my career, I always found a way to do things differently. Mm. I suppose before I I had a family and things like that, I used to train in my own time. I didn't know what I was doing, but believe it or not, I used to go running. Like, I used to go running, I'd go do extra weights. And I heard about Tom Curry and his brother. They go do bang weights in the evening, which is madness. You know, S&C coaches hate it. They should be recovering, Mm -hmm. but... I'd I'd go to a local basketball hall and I'd throw balls in the hoop. I'd like I lived and breathed. I wanted to be good, you know. Whereas a criticism maybe of some players these days, I don't think. I think they do what's put on for them here. I've done training today, but like unless you got kids and a missus and a, another job, you got to do like what are you doing? Yeah, recovery is important, but like I don't know. I always felt like I was trying to do more. And Chris Ashton, who was in between clubs recently, he's just gone to Leicester. He was using the gym at my house and in, in my garage. So who, I was talking to him, he's an ultra competitor. Like he loves winning. And a young player came around and saw him there. And uh, the young player said uh, to me, like, what's, what's he doing here? He was still contracted with the club. Chris was still contracted with the club, so he trained in the day. Then he came to my place in the evening to do some more. Mm-hmm. And the player, this other guy came around and kind of said, this is a bad way of telling a story, but questioned why he was doing more because he'd already trained. And Chris heard this and said, well, that's the fucking problem with you young players these days. Like, you think you've done enough? Mm-hmm. And he's there training in the day, training in the evening because he's got nothing else to do. Like, why not train? Yeah. Why not do more? As long as more is not detrimental Benefit, yeah. to what you do. Yeah. But I think when you ask, like, what... What was I good at? I was good at putting in the hours. And I think one of the conversations, early ones I had with Eddie was um, along with what he liked about me after he said I wasn't very good physically, not very impressive. (laughs) He said, you've got a good mindset, Mm. which we've covered. And he goes, he didn't know this about me at the time, but he goes, I want you to be the example of work ethic. Mm. So there was only two players older than me in the team. And that was Hask, might've been a year older and one other. So when the oldest player became the example of work ethic whether that be off the field in terms of diligence in note taking meeting uh, analysis meetings you know just general management running around being a captain liaising or whether that was physical work like I did it all I heard Danny Kerr talk about it recently you know tell stories about when the boys would come in on a day off uh, on a Wednesday for recovery and it'd be like full pancake breakfast massages you know yoga hot pod yoga everything set up but then the the wrestling mat was there like the coliseum was set up for me and the amount of coaches wrestling coaches that i fought snc coaches that i fought 
they even brought in um gee i forgot the guy's name a ufc coach brought him in so like i was constantly fighting when i talk about fighting you know like ground-based conditioning mm. so like where the guys were resting it was like dylan you need to work one physically i needed to work because i need to improve but two it was like more the statement of being seen to be working when yeah. the guys are resting so like eddie worked unbelievably hard steve borthwick the head coach worked unbelievably hard I'm talking like from five in the morning to midnight, mm. planning everything to the the minute, you know, sessions planned to the minute. And I was very much the same um, whilst trying to focus on my four jobs in the team and, <laughs> and lead the team and play at the weekend. And I look back at it and I was knackered going into games at the weekend, but I got through, you know, I survived. So yeah, work ethic was, was, was a good thing. And I think, again, it's sort of thing that's in you as a person um, but again, like a skill that you learn, yeah. uh, it can be trained, you know, at 18, 19, you, you might think you've done enough to get to your professional contract, but then you look at the World Cup winning All Black, who's 35, uh, you turn up for training, he's already in the gym mm. training yeah. and he's wrote his own program because he's not letting someone else dictate, he knows what he wants to do. So like we had a couple of All Blacks here, two brothers, they were exactly that. 33 and 35 when they're here mm -hmm. and they were the example of work ethic won two world cups you know what i mean like legends of the game and you think they've got some sort of like magic potion but they're first in mm -hmm. not always last to leave but they just so they dro drove their own careers effectively yeah. so but then i think work ethic sort of thing that's drilled into you maybe from your parents from an early age you know not not wiping your ass for you effectively mm -hmm. i remember getting home from school and, and making my own dinners and stuff like that or I remember, I don't know what I was doing at the time, but you, you talk about my, my high school experience, seeing Liam Messon, the future All Black, knowing that he was doing plyometric training. I don't know what the fuck plyometric training was, but I'd get home because I lived in uh, out in the sticks. I'd go for a three kilometer run, you know, just a three kilometer run. But I think from 12, 13 years old, I was doing those sorts of things. I was practicing, like consciously thinking, I've got to put the work in and... I did everything from, um, I remember a scaffold pole at home with two tires, you know, on the inside, like deadlift, <laughs> like trying all that stuff. Like it was absolute rubbish. But my dad being uh, a builder uh, and us living rurally, we, we always did jobs, you know, yeah. and I was my dad's helper. Like he does credit me uh, amongst my two other brothers hmm. as the best helper. Like, oh, I just love work. And I see it with my daughter now. Whenever I'm doing a job at home, help. she's always hanging around, you know. Aww. When I'm in the gym with my best mate, she's in the gym like really? hanging on the ring so i i'd like to think i'm like instilling yeah but it's a good thing like, i'm not forcing her it's to the do example it. Yeah. yeah so she's always going to have a good association with working doing jobs like getting pleasure out of it mm -hmm. and you know in the gym you know yeah. it's a good place to be yeah it's so good may i got two questions and then we'll go and eat yeah is that right yeah it's very important that we go and eat you good for two more yeah <laughs> and just on that like i love the work ethic thing because i remember watching something about kobe bryant chris bosch was actually talking about him saying i think they come together for the team usa like for the olympics now nah, weren't they playing each other it might have been so well, and the, the, i think in basketball they turn up and you can warm up that's it before the warm-up yeah you know? before the warm-up yeah, tell, so, tell the story okay so tell he it. was obviously there to try and make himself look uber competitive and set the standards so 
set his alarm for like 6am or whatever it was and he wanted to go and do a session before the session and then before they even played against each other or whatever the competition was got out of bed got downstairs was excited thinking he's going to beat everyone down there and show how hard working he is Kobe sat there eating his breakfast with ice on his knees already because he's already trained at like 4am or something so he was doing like three a day is already but that was like at the end of his career as well so I think it's underestimated like the, the work ethic that people have and I don't think it's necessarily there but I think you're right it's instilled at a very young age like those your uphill paper round at, at a young age I think you take all those people take enjoyment from it yeah like the, can I tell you the Kobe story that I heard yeah very yeah. similar Mate, to that please. it's probably why it's slightly different but I think before a game you can turn up and you know basketball's really weird turn up wearing what you want you yeah. know like they do their own thing but Kobe was there and this guy same thing wanted to show Kobe he meant business he's playing him that day so he got there before the warm up but Kobe was already on the court he's like shit right I'm gonna go out and then he reckons he warmed up for ages like he gave it a good amount of time yeah. and then he was like he then thought I'm gonna stay even longer and do even more and Kobe just kept staying there doing his thing doing his thing and then um, he just thought, fuck it, this is actually going to become detrimental. So he took off, you know, showered, went back to the hotel and they played late that evening. After the game, um, he's gone up to Kobe and gone like, man, what are you doing this morning? Like, unbelievable. Like what you, he just said, I only stayed that long because you were there. <laughs> so Kobe wasn't going to be, it wasn't even about the work. Yeah. It was about like the, the uh, so psychological warfare yeah. of yeah, like the impact that he wanted on his competitor yeah so he'd already won yeah he'd already won before the game started but that's like Mike Tyson when he said as soon as you look at the canvas before the fight I know I'll beat you really yeah so just before they're about to fight he's looking at them yeah. that's why you see a lot of fighters today UFC and stuff they won't even engage in that psychological warfare before the fight yeah they'll just look at the canvas whereas like Tyson was like if we eye contact and you break you it look down I've already beat you wow yeah that's cool man so wait two more alright this is one that was off the back of something I read in your book. So after the World Cup 2011, you can feel free to like add a bit of context yeah. to the story of what happened there. You said you went on a five-year process of personal realignment. Yeah. And it seems to be consistent with the people I work with. You know, you mentioned like the 28, 29-year-olds around that time. And you kind of like, some people call it find myself or whatever. You, you realize there's more to life than what you saw before. You might have a perspective shift. So I'm just fascinated on what that five-year process entailed and what you got from that. Well, it's funny because it, I suppose it culminated in 2016, 2011 to 2016. And it, it finished with uh, working with Eddie and a, a Grand Slam. But uh, the four years before that weren't as perfect. It actually resulted me getting banned for the home world cup but i suppose i left that tournament and that tournament was a rugby world cup and it was the only rugby world cup i ended up going to because uh, i got banned for two others and i got injured for another so i had opportunity to go to them and when i look back on my career i should have respected that more and at the time when i went i didn't respect it i was young free and single not single i had my girlfriend but that sort of blase mm. attitude to life you know i was professional I was doing what I loved where, uh, you know, I was back in New Zealand, my, my, my home country and we're at a, a major sporting tournament. But like my role models, I suppose at the time, and I'm, I'm not blaming anyone because I, I was very much a sheep, but team sport, when the majority of the team's doing one thing, I was the majority, you know, mm. I went with the team, but there was people like Johnny Wilkinson in that team. And I'm just thinking maybe if I'd spent a bit more time with Johnny, like whenever I get a chance to talk to Johnny now, like I'd always leave with, something you know mm. I always feel better or I've learned something from talking to him and I suppose 2011 I was at an age where all my mates were in the team all similar young kind of group and 
we trained hard, we played hard, but we also partied hard. And in our downtime, we just enjoyed ourselves. But there's a few things that happened at that Rugby World Cup that left me feeling um, not embarrassed, but just not in a, I didn't feel good about it. Like I didn't respect the tournament, you mm-hmm. know, like for what it was. And when I look back on my career, I was right. You know, so I got in a little bit of trouble off the field, not through any wrongdoing, just doing what the group were doing, you know. Uh, it was usually around alcohol because um, that's what we did back in 2011. It's only 10, 11 years ago, but um, it was just the way it was. And I suppose I left that environment saying I shouldn't mix so business with pleasure as much. I treated I, After that, I treated rugby very much as business. I still enjoyed my downtime and did the team thing, but I kept it to a level where I suppose I had more control, mm-hmm. more balance to, to that. And then we, we went on a four-year journey, I suppose, as that team. And it coincided with Stuart Lancaster coming in, overtaking the team, and then swinging the sort of balance completely the other way. So there was a no alcohol mm. policy. There was kind of no fun. You know, it was very much a, a, a teacher-student yeah. relationship. Um, and effectively, uh, that's what he got on the field. He got a whole lot of students, kids, yeah. you know, whereas rugby internationally is a, a man's game. You need people to think for themselves. and yeah. But... Hey ho, either way, that four years that went by and I was far more diligent and professional and aware because we were building to an English, uh, an England Rugby World Cup at Twickenham, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I really did apply myself in that time. Uh, but I suppose this is where like team environments, I felt constricted, I couldn't be myself and it probably didn't get the best out of me. Whereas the previous environment was too loose yeah. and I could be myself, but too much... Mm. It's, it's like I had too many little birdies on my shoulder and then it went back the other way and I couldn't be myself. It's like James Haskell couldn't be himself and Chris Ashton couldn't be himself. And then the environment, I didn't want to spend time on my down days with the England rugby team. I just want to go home back to Northampton where I was appreciated and I was almost reading off the, the, the hymn sheet. You know, I was doing what I was told. And that didn't go well in the end. So I get banned for the 2015 World Cup and that hurt because... I'd experienced four years under Jono, basically partying, enjoying being a young professional. Then they had that 2011 experience and I thought, right, I'm going to shape up now. I'm going to target this next World Cup. I'm going to win a World Cup and I'm going to become an English rugby legend with the rest of the boys and I'm going to take this very seriously. Tried that, but the environment, I didn't flourish and I didn't enjoy as much. And then ultimately I got banned for it. Um, I didn't really do anything. Uh, Jamie George was down there. I just scored a try. Um, and I celebrated with my head on his head, you know, hmm. like a come on sort of moment. And it was deemed as a headbutt. And I think if you talk to Jamie, he would, both of us would agree it wasn't a headbutt. It was, a, it was an over-exuberant celebration. In the context of Saracens, Northampton, me, Jamie, it was just one of those one-up. It was nothing. But I got banned for that 2015 World Cup, and then I was like, shit. So I've worked four years for this. I've actually thought about this for four years, and I'm now not going to take part. But then I had my daughter, and, you know, it's like when you have your first child, nothing else mattered. Yeah, the best. And then Eddie rings up after England get knocked out of that World Cup, didn't even make it out of the pool. And yeah. it was like a failure, you know. And Eddie said, you want to come be the captain of the England rugby team, you know. Your fingerprints haven't been on on mm. that tournament. So I'm like sliding doors. It, it yeah. worked out pretty good. And then you meet Eddie as his coach. So I'd had a really loose environment, a really tight environment. And then he just had this make your own choices environment. He put beers on the table. He's like, if you want a beer, have a beer. If you want some cake, have cake. You know, 
we, we had things like tomato sauce taken off the table. Mm. Like when you live in a you know a five star hotel spa hotel, it's not a five star spa hotel. It's like a prison, you know. So you look for any sort of enjoyment or yeah. little lift that can. Be. And when tomato sauce goes for some of the boys, when you got like, I don't know, everyone has tomato sauce just as a bit of sugar, but yeah. yeah. But like that was taken yeah. off the menu. It's like I spoke to Husk about that. He was talking about he'd, he'd walk around with the um, I can't remember the, the book now. It's the San Francisco 49ers head coach book. Not Bill. Yeah, Belichick. No, no, that's the Patriots one. It is, is Bill it? something. Anyway, okay. it'd, it'd walk around that, which was like old school tactics of all of that, restricting people really. But maybe you need that in NFL. I don't know. But it's funny, isn't it? Because after that 2011 World Cup, you'd already made the decision yourself. So then to have it forced on you, it's a different feeling, isn't it? Whereas Eddie's empowered you to make the decision. Albeit, you know, if you turn up and your skin fold isn't at the right level, you get sent but home. This is the thing, right? Like the power of choice. If you tell someone they can't have something or do something. So I'll make that an example. Davey Wilson, the guy who tackled me out here, ended my career, right? Big tight-head prop from Newcastle. <laughs> um, he tattooed his own Nike tick into his leg when he was drunk once. Unbelievable guy. We call him the moose, mate. He's, he's, a, he's a legend. He's had it tattooed over now. <laughs> but... um. Either way. Shoe dog will be happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable, mate. So he, I saw him one night under Stuart Lancaster's regime coming back from the MS down the road with two, you know, the mountain of a man lurk, you know, walking up the path in the dark with two bags and it's full of contraband. Biscuits, you know, cookie, like cookies, biscuits, same thing. Mm. Cakes, you know, Percy pigs, the, the lot. But it's because we weren't allowed it. So he goes out and makes a choice. The same thing with me, day mm. off. Oh, I'm going to go to Costa on the way home. I'm going to smash a Tiffin, a Chris, you know, like get a whole of stuff. But then like Eddie comes in, do what you want. You guys want a drink? He put, he put wine on the table. He put beers on the table. If you want to have one, have one. And all of a sudden people come and have a, a glass of wine with dinner or a beer and it's like normalized. But if you want to have it, yeah. equally with puddings, he used to put puddings on the table. And I'd know with my skin folds, probably not the best for me, but to partake socially, I'm going to have a slither. Because I feel like I'm, you know, and then I don't go back to my room and go to the shops and buy stuff. Yeah. Give people the choice to do the right thing. I think food, especially, so alcohol and sweet is so important for morale in that environment because you're there for so long. And you think, how many times in a day do you actually get to connect with your missus and kid? I mean, in a weekday, yeah, it's limited. But but where is it? It's for me, it's the dinner table. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for us, like where people have got different schedules, left, right, training, bang, 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 100 miles an hour. The only time you stop in the day scheduled mm. for recovery is food and, and rest. Yeah. Rest you do by yourself. Food is where we connect. Mm. That's where we go, how's the missus? How's the kids? How many kids you got? One, two. Okay, cool. She doing all right? Mm, not so good. Oh, you should try this. Or, hey, that line out that we fucked up today. So you can talk about work. You know, like so much more can happen here. So the one thing I did, I'm really happy I did it, I banned these at the table. Nice. It was like 10 press-ups if you're on your phone. Eddie did them, management did them, and we created a culture where food became so important, sitting down around the table was was key. You know, We got so much more done, so much more bonding. And part of that is is things like beers. Like first coach we've ever seen goes, mate, I think we need a social. We're in Kensington, the fellow week, he's like, right, we're gonna split the guys into four guys, uh, four groups, we've got four pubs lined up for you. But the guys go, they know they've got training tomorrow. They probably have one, two pints. Get like lo looseners, you know? Guys having a chat, probably going to have a third. And then it's like, oh, we'll call it now. No one kicks on. No one, 
they just have a, it's just give people the power of choice it's like the bloody vax I don't want to get into anti-vax mm. and pro-vax but if you tell people to do something yeah. they don't want to do it give them the choice educate them yeah it's funny it's almost going back to that non-conformist what we were talking about isn't it it's like when you are forced to do something the non-conformist goes fuck off yeah I'm not being told what to do I can make my own decisions or let me ever think about it yeah I'll do that now because I've thought about it yeah. but yeah but it, maybe that's him educating people to think for themselves mm. and then on the rugby field like it's, it's, it's a bit deeper but I felt like one regime compared to the other couldn't make decisions for yeah. themselves they're kind of looking to the box like yeah. help us help yeah. us whereas Eddie's team is very much and that's the, again in, we talk about society most of us are looking externally like help me like because it is chaos especially the last couple of years so everyone's looking externally rather than having the confidence to just go no I can make decisions for myself or look after myself that's why we'll talk about this later but in coaching pure coaching in the sense we were talking about before it's, it's only ever questions it's never advice advice is mentorship pure coaching is you're, the emphasis is on so the client so if you're the coach yeah. you're kind of getting them to just deepening the awareness so it's just yeah. serving up another question and letting you think about it make your own decision make your own mind up about it because this is right they often have the answer right it's yeah. just showing them yeah. and, and getting it out of them right mm. yeah i exactly. get that yes yeah. that's good you, you also said we're products of our experience right most of us are who we are today is the things that have happened to us in the past which shape us and that's how we identify as who we are so what would be the standout two or three things that have shaped you you said we are the products of our experience what are those experiences that have shaped you i think an upbringing in new zealand you know that rotorua where i grew up is kind of like uh, low socioeconomic sort of blue collar it's a great tourist destination uh, kind of Maori mythology and legend is all based there so like in terms of like diversity and culture I felt like didn't feel like a minority but I feel like knowledge is power you know mm. like I, I learned about different cultures from an early age and I embraced them you know I was part of it so I felt like that experience growing up there and everything from like the classic Kiwi barefoot lifestyle, going to school bare feet, you know, trying to find your shoes on day four, catching the bus at five years old at the bottom of the road. The road I grew up on was a gravel road, like loose gravel. And, you know, 45 to an hour bus ride to school every day as a five-year-old. I went with my big brother. You know, mum didn't take us. It was hmm. just like... So like the whole experience of like a Kiwi upbringing, a bit more in terms of outdoor education worldly education which is ironic that they're kind of isolated down there in the thing but like it's a far more sort of outgoing outdoorsy sort of environment and i think that coupled with the sort of cultural aspects that i grew up with the schooling aspects um the people and all that sort of stuff that that for me is formative and the only reason it is formative is because i left it i reckon if i stay in it i wouldn't be sat here going i wouldn't be talking to you for a start hmm. but i wouldn't say it was defining because my whole life would have been that there's no change so you need comparison to to change so i think then moving here realizing i was a bit different but then i think some of those earlier experiences made me successful here because they're instilled a good work ethic from my parents talking to people understanding different cultures made me successful here you know uh, ultimately a, a passion playing for rugby so i'd say firstly growing up in new zealand everything to do with it then moving here and using everything that I'd learned in New Zealand to maximise my opportunity here which I felt like I did and then I'd say the third step of that is probably 
family, you know, like wife, children, mm. um, buying into like that whole, like I love it. Like family's the best thing I've ever done. I wish I'd done it earlier, but really? you can't wish that because probably wasn't mature enough to do it then. It happens when it happens, right? And if anything, it's like that happened when I was still playing rugby and I've been waiting. I had my daughter on a, on a Monday and I went to the birth here at Northampton General and mm. then Tuesday I was back at training and I just played at the weekend and it didn't really sell, you know, it was like, oh, cool, but got back on the, the grind, you know? Yeah. And I felt like for five, six, seven, eight years, my missus like waited for me politely you know we missed funerals weddings christenings because i was always playing at the weekend and i think this is where it comes down to being successful maybe in in the time i came through was that resilience to mental resilience to just focus on rugby mm. it was every, i put it before put it for my wife you know or my girlfriend at the time like could we go out for dinner this week well i don't want to go out after wednesday i want wednesday thursday friday in bed and if we go out monday tuesday like if it's getting like near 11 o'clock we're out of there you know what I mean so like starved of like living a life in a way and I suppose this ties into the third phase of the three things you asked me for the liberation of retiring hmm. so having a family and then like we're on our first family holiday over New Year's never done that I've always played over New Year's it's like the liberation of now choosing what I want to do where I want to go every day do I want to train every day yeah I do so I do it um, do I want to eat that? I can because mm. skin folds don't need to be down, <laughs> but I need to do the work to. to but then, like just with work uh, opportunity, where where do I want to live in the world? You know, what what do I want to do with my my life from here on out? I think that stage. I don't know if I answered your question, but if I could break it into three sort of things, I think I answered your question with the first two. No, it's great. The third man. one's a bit different. No, it's, it is because it is. It's almost like looking forward in a way. Like, just, but but that kind of started when you became a dad, doesn't it? Didn't it? Although you were still within the rugby world and still making sacrifices, it changes you drastically and dramatically. Yeah. So, like, I'll tell you, we, you know, everyone talks about the why. Yeah. The why for me at 16, 17, 18 was to be a professional rugby player, to to earn money, to play in the great stadiums, to play against my heroes, the people that I grew up watching, to make a name for myself, to achieve. You know, I want to be a high achiever wanted to do it i wanted to be i wanted my family to acknowledge me i wanted you know uh, what's the word like you just want credit you know like you validation, validation. Yeah. yeah i think so at that age i wanted that once i'd done it it became very much business-like it was like right i'm here now i want to stay here because you know i earn well from it i enjoy it like the experience is cool like once you play for england i didn't want to come back and just play for club like you always want to play for england because mm. that level of competition is way better the environments that you're in a way better financially it's way better there's so much more to playing for England than your club so you want to stay there so that was my why yeah. and then I have kids and it's like this is while I'm still playing and Eddie gives me that throws me that bone as well so it's like you can make something of your career you can be remembered you can win a rugby world cup you can go down in history and I'm thinking okay it goes back to validation again legacy like what do I want my kids to think because if I look back on what I've done as a player, I don't really want my kids to think that was just dad, you know, mm. all, the, all the, the bands and the discipline. And then all of a sudden, like you see guys do it now with their kids at a game, they get them on the field after the game. Like it means something. Don't see them all week and then they come to a game. It's like, this is what dad does it for. And little fuckers don't know that. Mm. Like you're, you're putting the time in so they get a good inheritance or good opportunities yeah. or exposure, you know, but... I think for me, my why became my, my kids. So I always used to think about 
trying to make my parents proud when I played. But then at the end, I was like, make my, my wife and my, uh, my kids proud. But they've got no idea. You know what I mean? So I think it, it kind of changes throughout your yeah. career. Just like your influences change. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm probably talking too much, mate. Nah, good mate, coffee, to be fair. <laughs> Not bad for the old um, pod. <laughs> yeah. Mate, that was amazing. Thanks so much. Mate, I, I loved watching you as a player. And thanks. it's been such a pleasure having a chat all about it. And uh, that has been amazing. It's something I'll, I'll remember for a long time. So I appreciate it. Mate, thank you. Good luck with the pod. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Cheers. So there it is. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Dylan for such a fantastic day. Dylan is such an impressive individual, such an outstanding performer and has achieved so much in sport. And I can't wait to see what he goes on to do outside of the game. I'd love to hear your feedback on that episode, whether you listen to part one or part two. If there's anything that stood out, anything that you're going to adopt and take into your own life, I'd love to hear how that conversation has benefited you. You can reach me personally at markwitter underscore TF. You can reach Dylan at Dylan Hartley. And of course, you can always visit takeflightworld.com for everything else, Take Flight, and even email in hello at takeflightworld.com for any questions, guest suggestions, or anything else you might want to talk about. We also recently had the Take Flight event with Spencer Matthews, which was amazing. That episode is going on YouTube on Take Flight TV. So if you didn't get a chance to come to the event and want to hear what Spencer had to say about going sober a couple of years ago and creating his new business, CleanCo, which is the leading no-low alcohol company in the space, then you can catch everything Spencer said on Take Flight TV over at YouTube. You can sign up to the newsletter as well on Take Flight for all updates on future events if you might want to come, as well as exclusive content that we created just for those who are on the newsletter, which includes, but not limited to, book recommendations, guided practices and meditations, coaching techniques and exercises as well as first access to all new podcast episodes looking forward to releasing next week's looking forward to releasing next week's episode with you and until then stay positive stay motivated and take flight